You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and my poultry enthusiast friend, Arthur Parkinson. So I say that because this whole episode is going to be on what he has taught me that are not called chickens because that's what's on the plate, but are called hens because they're your friends. So it's hens as friends. So, Arthur, <laughs> lots of things that we can talk about. We, we could natter on for hours mm. about our hens and the ones that you've introduced me to. But I love the way you break down hens into these different roles in your mm. life. And, of course, we all know there are layers that, you know, you have hens because they lay eggs. And mm. it's the thing with veganism that I find most difficult because I think if you've got your own hen and it lays an egg, then you can eat it myself. But I'll probably yeah, get lots more. of hate mail now. Well, um, they can <laughs> message us if they like. <laughs> but the, the next, and I want you to tell us about all of these categories, but so layers. And then the mm. thing that you've taught me most about is hens as cuddly toys. So <laughs> Arthur did not like, we certainly didn't like, what's the opposite of Barbie doll? Oh God, Kevin. He didn't like Kevin. <laughs> doll and he didn't even like cuddly sort of teddy bear he liked hens so we'll talk about that mm. and then hens as beautiful models in your garden mm. and then hens that lay lovely colored eggs so oh how much beautiful things have we got to talk about so first of all arthur let's talk about breeds so what are yeah. the what are the crackers for layers so um I think the the wonderful thing about the ones that lay are they're the easiest to keep. So for for beginner people that just want some hens, and normally you do want hens for eggs, let's face it. It's not often that people go into poultry keeping wanting a companion animal, they want a productive animal. And the wonderful thing is that the layers are pretty much the easiest breeds to keep. And I increasingly am interested in the older breeds that are layers the hybrids are very good, the ones that have been bred to, to basically lay an egg a day. The problem with them is after 18 months or even 14 months, they've laid so many eggs that they're pretty much spent out. So those lovely, friendly red hens that um, you know we've all seen, they're wonderful, that, but they were bred for the battery cage. And so their feathers are not as dense as other breeds. And that means in a British winter, they, they have quite a tough time. They're often very cold. And you'll see them in a chicken run, you know, just standing there quite, you know, grumpily. And they're still laying the poor things and their bodies no longer tell them to take a break. And if mm. you think about it, chickens are the only bird in the world that we've made to lay an egg a day. Birds aren't designed to lay an egg a day. So I much prefer having breeds that lay really beautiful eggs, but have the common sense to take a to take a holiday. So um, you'll notice, Sarah, whenever you go to collect your eggs, they won't always be from nine chickens, nine eggs, and no. there'll be different colours because all of your hens have got a little brain cell or, you know, what's the word, instinct to stop laying, have a little break, and then they'll start laying again. Mm. So I like the older breeds. So I love Marans, which are a French breed. They're a big speckled hen, very hardy. And I know you had one for, for many years. 
and they lay a lovely, not a d- really dark shelled egg, the cookie morans, they lay a, a light brown egg, which is very lovely on the table. Mm. If you want a really dark egg, there's a breed called the copper moran, mm. which the Burford Brown was bred from, which a lot of people will know because that's the, the very posh supermarket egg that you see everywhere. So Burford Browns or Copper Black Morans, if you want a really dark egg. And they're almost like the colour of a ginger nut, aren't they? The egg is a colour of yeah. really, really rich brown. It really brand. is. Yeah. Yeah, and it fades, actually. When the hens first come into lay, they almost look like chocolate brown. Mm. And then the more brown eggs that they lay, because it's a pigment that's put on the shell as the, the egg leaves the hen's body, it's almost like painted. Oh, I didn't know that. When these eggs were first discovered, people thought they were uh, fake, because you can actually, if you... If you were to wash these eggs in warm water, the pigment does come off. Oh, okay. So there was huge controversy in, in Dutch and Holland where these hens were bred when they first emerged. Everyone said, oh, you've painted your eggs this strange colour. They're not, you're not telling the truth to these poor people <gasps> that had bred them. Wow. Welsomers also lay a beautiful terracotta egg. The problem with Welsomers is um, they're a Dutch breed and they're very flighty. So okay. certain hens like a lot of room. Some hens prefer to be in a, a coop. And that, that's one of the reasons why the, the Rhode Island Reds, the, the yeah. battery hen hybrids, are so suited to small spaces. Whereas something like a Wellsummer or a Leghorn, a lot of the Mediterranean breeds are much jumpier and they like to fly out their coop. I know you're experiencing um, a few escapees with your Hamburgs, which are a breed that I like to hatch for you because they are brilliant white egg layers and very, very handsome. But yeah. they do love to fly. And, mm. you know, if left to their own devices... The old breeds are the sort of breeds that would probably survive fairly well on their own. If they're not wing-clipped, they'll have the instinct to go and roost at the top of an apple tree or in a hay barn. Until yeah. Mr. Fox realises they're there, they'll have quite a, a decent time, you know, scavenging. Because hens used to be seen before the Second World War pretty much as farmyard fodder, really. Um, okay. They were kind of left to their own devices. They were chucked a bit of corn, but they weren't really looked after. They were just They just existed. Then once the First World War happened, hens started to be seen a bit more as exhibition farm animals. So that's when British breeding really started to take off. And of course, then we all start to eat them, which is when um, the Americans took over poultry breeding and it became much more intensive. So pre-war, when they were just sort of in the farmyard, how, how would you then find the nest to get the eggs? You You would just watch them? carefully would you yeah they'd be in the hay barn wouldn't they and yeah. um you know they'd be stable boys who'd probably have the job to to look for the eggs and also what hens used to be used for would be broodiness by gamekeepers you know ah. they, they used to be incubators so you know we all remember the gorgeous scene in lady chatterley's lover where lady chatterley goes to discover the gamekeeper and he's putting these little pheasant poults in with his broody hens yes. you know every farm in fact, a broody hen used to be a really valuable thing because you used to be able to rent these hens out to the gamekeeper of your lord and lady. Like a witness. And you could earn quite a lot of money from a good from a good broody hen. Whereas now, most people don't want broody hens, they want the eggs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So so those are reliable layers. And then uh, what about your specialism, which is hens as cuddly toys, where they're yeah. sort of crazy. Well, and you certainly yeah. wouldn't want them near, <laughs> near um, hen poo because <laughs> they need... No. Their hair doing as often as Debo Devonshire. Yeah. I mean, I, I I started with with layers. Um, the first hens that my dad bought me were just hybrids. Yeah. Um, but what I realised very quickly were these hens couldn't be allowed out into the garden. I think that's the biggest thing you have to decide before you go anywhere near a poultry sale. Yeah. You really need to decide: Do I want a chicken that's going to look nice, you know, strutting around the lawn, or do I want a chicken that's going to be basically living its existence behind chicken wire? 
because unfortunately the layers tend to destroy a garden unless you're willing to plant a garden with lots of hem resistant plants you know euphorbias roses woody herbs but to be honest if you want a, a cutting garden or a vegetable garden you are going to have have layers behind chicken wire so i prefer small bantams because they've got smaller feet shorter legs Mm. Um, if they've got feathered feet in particular, they're not able to scratch as vigorously. And it's the scratching that hurts plants because they're scratching at the base of the plant and they're ruining the root systems. So I like the ornamental bantams, which were bred almost like chihuahuas and, mm. you know, toy dogs were. They were kind of bred as for like, you know, Marie Antoinette to look at my lovely chicken in the farmyard. And they, they were discovered quite often in places like China when we first went to China, the Peking Bantam, which is the most cuddly hen, really, that was discovered in the palace of Peking. And rumour has it that these birds used to, you know, literally just sit in the emperor's robes. <laughs> really? Um, so, they, you know, they're much more people-orientated birds, yeah. And silkies come from China as well. And there's the smallest... And you have them? Yeah, I have them. So I don't get many eggs. All summer long, I'm having to stop them going broody, which is the biggest issue because all these little bantams, they are very happy being mother hens. So you do have to think about that as well. Uh, Managing broody hens is quite hard because basically they almost switch themselves off and just become incubators and they even at times forget to eat and drink. So every day you have to be chucking these broody hens off the nest, making sure they're eating and drinking, making sure that they're not just sitting there getting fleas and mites. Yeah. So that's something to think about as well. There is You have to really research your breeds, just like getting a dog or or any animal, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember you going on Zoe Ball, the radio, about a couple of months ago, and um, (laughs) you you had your hens with you by the microphone. (laughs) Well, tell us what your tell us what Claudia Lindian, which is your brother and Claudia after my brother, yeah, and Claudia after after Claudia Winkleman after your (laughs) your heroine. Anyway, they were very noisy and it was very funny. Yeah, she's not <laughs> she's not picked up on the fact. I've not heard from Claudia Winkleman oh, at all about it. Sorry, <laughs> that's a shame. I know, Never I know that was your hope. Um, okay, so so cuddly toys. Any more on cuddly toys? Um, if you want a, a chicken that looks bonkers but also lays eggs and doesn't get broody, I can really recommend a breed called the Poland which oh. are those birds that look like they've got a globe of flowers over their heads. You can't actually see their eyes. You just see a beak oh. sticking out, this beautiful yes. globe of feathers. And they're called Polans. And they come in lots of different colours. They haven't got feathered legs, which makes looking after them a lot easier. And they lay really well. The only thing is, because they've got this bouffant of head feathers, they do need to be in a chicken run that's got a roof. Mm. Right. Because if their heads get wet, they can get pneumonia. Oh, dear. So Polans are a good sort of in-between layer and looker. If you want, but best of both worlds. But our cockerel's a gold Poland, isn't he? But he seems quite a hardy old boy or young boy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's there. The cockerels do tend to take care of themselves much better, and he's okay. quite streetwise, isn't he? Actually, yeah. Um, but if he was a Poland hen, he'd be laying. She'd be laying quite well for you. Okay, so then I guess I I just wanted to touch on this thing about lovely coloured eggs. So I know as a, I like beautiful things and, um, and it certainly gives me a daily, be- daily joy actually when I go down. So we, I, we get the ginger nut color from the copper black morans. We get the, uh, the blue from the cream leg bars that you bought me. Cream leg bars. Yeah. Which are a lovely hen. Yeah. 
and then we get the white from uh, the Hamburg and Friesian Bantams. But I know that you wanted to get me mm. one that lays green eggs. So what? which variety is that that lays a green? They're called um, olive eggers, and it's basically a cross between a leg bar, cream leg bar, and a moran. And right. supposedly the genetics of the cockerel mixed with the genetics of, of that hen produce a pullet, which is a young hen that will go on to lay a, a greeny egg. Um, I mean, some a breed called the Aracana, which the cream leg bars were bred from. Oh, yes. They came from South America originally. And their Aracanas, depending on the strain, will also lay a either a blue egg or, you know, a, 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 a jade-coloured egg, a green egg. So, yeah, unfortunately, we got it wrong. I think I ordered the wrong eggs off eBay. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I, I, it's, it's a thing of beauty anyway. Well, hopefully next year you'll get some. <laughs> I would love you to tell us all now. I mean, you've taught me a lot, but I still have to text you quite regularly or WhatsApp you. But, of course, unfortunately, we can't let mm. everyone do that because you would then have to be on the helpline. 24 hours a day, but, um, um, or maybe not quite, I'm exaggerating and the importance of our podcast, but anyway, you'd get a bit busy. So what are your top keeping tips if you have, let's say three to six hens for a family? So you know, how many, how long do they live? What to do about rats, foxes, all that? So, um, I, I would always start off with three hens. Hens, hens should never be kept alone really, unless they are the last of the, the flock. I know a few people have got old hens that are on their own. The vital thing to understand is that hens live in a, a something called a pecking order. And um, the pecking order is the way of hens living in harmony with one another. The problem is they don't tend to readily accept outsiders. So it's really important at the start to start off with the number of hens that are going to supply you with eggs rather than thinking, oh, I'll buy two this week and then get another two in two weeks' time. The hens will form a hierarchy and the new hens will be picked on sometimes quite badly. So if you are introducing new hens they have to be the same age ideally and give them a lot of space or introduce them very slowly using a, a smaller hen house within the main hen run but for people that um have got a small back garden i think it's it's worth buying a hen run that is um all in one so the hen house is attached to the hen run i like the hen houses that are raised off the floor and properly raised off the floor by a good you know two or three foot and that means you you're never going to get rats underneath the hen house and the hens can go under the hen house then and get a bit of dry space when it's raining. So I like the two-in-one hen houses. I will be honest, I don't like the small plastic hen houses that have become in vogue. I think they look visually unappetising in a small garden. Om Omelettes, are they called? Oh, yeah, Probably get told like off that. for naming what they are. Mm. Yeah, but they were sort of designed as like the the low-maintenance way of keeping your hens. To be honest, there's there's no, no such thing as low-maintenance hen keeping. If you don't clean your hens out, you will get something called the red mite, which is a real plague of, of hen houses. But as long as you dust your hen house from the word go with um, something called diamitous earth, which is a natural powder from fossilised fossils, you sprinkle that along the perches every week and in the nesting boxes. You shouldn't get red mite. And... Um, what red mite does is it sucks the hen's blood at night. It's mm. tiny. It's like a grain of pepper. And it swells up red overnight after it's sucked the hen's blood. And the hens become anemic very quickly. So red mite can be prevented and rats can be prevented by having a hen house off the floor and also using a rat-proof chicken feeder. Yeah. Because I do find it amazing the amount of people that say to me, oh, I've, I've given up keeping chickens out. My garden was full of rats. And then you ask, well, why was it full of rats? Mm. And almost every time you get looked at as if you've said the wrong thing. And quite often it's because there's a whole great big chicken feeder mm. 
stacked to the guns with corn and layers pellets out all night long. Totally. And it's just like presenting a buffet. And that acts like a magnet to rats, particularly in an urban place or a country garden. Yeah. We were guilty of that. When we came here, we found this big chicken feeder, I suppose you call it, um, in one of the barns. We just thought, oh, well, we'll use that. But of course, it, mm. it, it, it exactly as you say, it just sits there and it's not rat proof. So they come out at night and feast away. So you're just feeding your rat population all the time. And then you got us this one, yeah. which I have to say, I mean, obviously we haven't got a camera checking it, but it, the um, consumption of the feed went down two thirds. I mean, literally we were having to fill it every three days. Now it's every 10 days. It genuinely is. And that's the difference. And of course, yeah. that's nothing to do with how many hens I've got or how greedy the hens are. It's just to do with the fact that no. uh, the squirrels and the rats aren't um, aren't feasting on on the corn or the pellets that, that we were putting in there. Yeah, it's a, it's a great design. I'm I'm talking with the producer. Are you? To make a bigger one so it can feed more hens. Okay, yeah, that's good. I mean, the thing that we have in the middle of the country here, well, less, I suppose, than in the middle of London or you know, in a city where people... Really, I think it is very difficult to have hens. But I was sitting at the kitchen table a couple of weeks ago and this very handsome, large fox walked past the gate that I was looking straight down the central path in the cutting garden and this very swaggery fox swaggered across. And so I sort of panicked and put all the hens away for three days and, you know, let them out into their run but not into the big grassed area because I think a fox could have hopped over that, even mm. though it's fenced. Um, and and then we just I just couldn't bear them being shut up anymore. And so they've come out, and we haven't lost any touch, every bit of wood that I'm sitting on. No, I mean, you've never had the fox for as long as I've known you, have you? No. And it is funny that you've always, you've always said to me, because I'm quite keen to have two hen runs, so I can give one a rest and the grass to regrow and stuff, and put them in another. Mm. But you've always said to me, I just wouldn't, play with that because you've obviously found somewhere that is secure against the fox and if you put them out in the in the middle of a meadow it's it's much more easy for the fox to to sort of score the joint so to speak and make a plan and so we haven't but one of the things that's been really exciting to making it look more decorative and less like a sort of trodden earth hellhole in there um <laughs> is that we've started experimenting with not only a hen-resistant grass collection, which has done really, really well with this wet spring and summer, but also you encouraged me to put mm. narcissus through it and alliums. And the narcissus cragford flowered from the middle of March until early May, because it was such a cool spring this year, and now we've got alliums. And so it looks really lovely. It looks like a meadow, but it happens to have lots of hens strutting about in it. Yeah, I'm so pleased with that hen run. So it, it, that's, that's been such a big success. Anything else on the tip front? I'm trying to think of the questions that people would be screaming at us. Yeah, just, just to, it's really good to mention the grass because hens really do thrive on grass. They're not grazing animals, they're omnivores. But um, I really think that, that grass helps hens be healthy and also keeps them very occupied. Hens that are bored will start pecking each other mm. quite quickly, particularly in a small hen run. But the problem is in a small garden, you're often, when you start out, sold this romantic idea of moving a hen arc every week around your little lawn. And I promise you within two months, your lawn will be dead mm. if you go down that method of keeping hens because chicken droppings when they're fresh is are highly acidic. They kill yeah. grass roots. And that's why if you 
ever have a walk through an allotment and you come across a, a hen run that's permanent with a lot of hens in it, too many quite often, the only thing growing in that hen run will be nettles that yeah. the hens don't eat because they taste bitter. But it's because the soil is classed as stale and it will be packed full of nitrogen. So what, what we did at Perch Hill this year was Sarah's hen run was looking quite brown. So we kept the hens in for, I think, most of April, actually, just to try and get this grass seed growing. And then we let the hens out. And because Sarah's got a very generous sized hen run and about nine hens, the grass is able to be self-supporting. And we're mowing it now. Keeping it a good thick sward is important rather than just letting it become a jungle. Mm. If you do that, you'll end up with lots of docks and nettles. And also a messy hem run, again, encourages and invites rats. So be very clean with your hem run, you know, no litter around it, not, nothing lying around. And store your chicken food properly. Sarah's got a brilliant, huge metal fortress of a feed bin now, which means that, you know, no vermin can get in there. Yeah. It's really a great piece of kit. I mean, it's a sort of farm thing. We we have it up in the farmyard. Yeah. So again, if you've got a small garden, I really recommend a, a hen house, which is more like an aviary, really, with the the hen house um, above the ground. A roofed hen run is really good because that means if there's a bird flu outbreak and you're told that you've got to have your hens in, you are classed as being biosecure. And if you're in an urban area, there's nothing worse than a nosy neighbour going, oh, your chickens should be, you know, mm. in or, you know, as long as you've got a solid roof on your hen run, you're, you'll be fine with them, um, food and rural affairs people. And Good. it also means that your hens get a nice dry winter uh, because hens hate the wind and rain. Mm. Uh, they really do, regardless of what breed they are. I think it's important to remember that these birds originated in India where they're in lovely hot tropical jungle mm. so they don't like being outside in a bare field or having the wind against them they like to feel sheltered and cozy mm. so for the whole winter i have my hen house on um, a solid area of concrete i have them on deep litter which is where i i clean them out every four weeks but every week they get topped up with fresh chopped straw and again i scatter that with antimite powder and they're happy as larry mm. the nicest thing to do for hens is to give them a dust bath though and I do that by giving them a large tin bath mm. or a plastic crate lined with compost, old compost bags. And I fill that with old wood ash and any dry compost. And they then basically have their own little spa. And that's what keeps them clean and healthy and happy. So dust bath and protection from the wind and rain is, are my top tips. And so if you've got an open fire or a wood burner, that's what we do. Our, ours goes into a bucket yeah. and, um, and then it goes straight into the dust bath. In, in the hen run. And the other thing uh, you've taught me about is ab about kitchen waste. Because when I was a child, we used to literally sort of, it was like pig swill, mm. but it was for the hens. And we would boil the potato peelings yeah. and the carrot peelings and stuff and uh, cook them till they were soft. And then that would go out. And to be honest, I think we, we mm. fed our hens pretty much everything. But here you've taught me, well, one, if I've got like the heart of a broccoli or that really tough bit in the middle of the cabbage what I now do is I chop it into chunks and mm. I boil it for five minutes and then I give them that and they absolutely love it but if I put it out raw they don't go near it and they don't like potatoes you've taught me they don't no. like potatoes so I, I don't give them potatoes oh. they absolutely love the top little bit when you've hormed your strawberries for this time of year they love uh, the little bit of mm. strawberry just below that so they adore that they will not eat citrus, and you can't put citrus on your compost heap either. So that has to go in the bin, I'm afraid, or into your wormery. I don't know whether I don't know. I don't know enough about wormeries. Um, I'm trying to think of the other don'ts. Oh yeah, mouldy, mouldy things. 
So you can't just chuck your mouldy strawberries. Yeah, basically anything that we wouldn't want to eat if we were drunk, I think, is a good rule. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I think I think remembering that hens aren't pigs because hens yeah. don't have teeth. So as Sarah said, you know, if, if you're willing to boil up your your hard broccoli and things, then it's far more palatable. But if you're just going to chuck in a hard broccoli core, then they can't really peck that. Mm. What I like to do is I've got a big old wild bird fat ball hanger, uh, which I stuff full of all all sorts of things, and that's hung up. Then the hens can peck it, and that occupies them for most of the day. But the biggest thing that hens need to eat for good, strong eggshells is is grit. Yeah. Because that's what forms the eggshell. And um, even if your hens are free-range, to be honest, I think you should be giving them grit. It mm. just makes it easier for them to, to consume enough grit so you get a nice hard egg. Because if the eggs are soft... You often get problems with um, soft-shelled eggs. Mm. And if an egg breaks in a hen house, the hens will very quickly realise that eggs are tasty. Mm. And you'll end up with hens that are addicted to eating their own eggs, which which can be a real problem and oh, often has gosh. only one quite sad outcome because the hens just get such a taste for it that there's 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 nothing to be done. So, yeah, hot grit, grit and oyster shell. You know, you can get a big sack for eight quid and it'll last you a good couple of months and just keep giving them as much as they want to eat. But even because, I mean, we have those, we have that, we have, because um, mm. you make sure we do, but I've noticed one soft shell uh, below the the roosting bars for, for ours here, and I cleared that away. But that's interesting that I need to be really, really careful with that then. I think that's from our very old hen. Yeah, well, that that's why the supermarkets insist on all hens uh, for commercial laying being, you know, taken off to suit factory so early in their lives because the eggshell density gets thinner and thinner. Mm. And things like right. soft-shelled eggs and little eggs become far more common as a, as a hen's laying system becomes older. Uh, the eggs aren't as perfect. Right. And, of course, they lay less. I mean, that's another thing to mention. Hens aren't machines. And, you know, most hybrid hens start laying at 18 weeks old. The older breeds won't start laying until 25 weeks old. And then they'll have they'll have periods of rest, you know, when they lose their feathers molting, they'll stop laying. In the winter, they lay less because the daylight affects yep. their laying hormones. Just like the wild birds, they'll they'll come back into lay properly in the spring, and you'll get less eggs in the winter. So don't expect endless eggs. You know, they're not machines. They they take periods of rest and they deserve a holiday. So that's what I'd say about people just wanting eggs. <laughs> That again, I keep saying the things that you've taught me, but I remember going into the hen run here and I, I thought there must have been a dead hen because there were so many feathers. I thought the fox had been, <laughs> but actually it just three or four of them had come into malt at the same time. Is it called French malt? Why is it called French malt? Or is it just called malt? French French malt, something buttery gars get, I think. Oh, uh, okay. Anyway, I remember you said, oh, it's just the malt. And... um and the whole place, I could have made hats um, for, from, the, from the number of feathers I had. But not to worry is what you said. It's completely part of their life cycle. Yeah. Mm. I mean, if you, if you start when they are molting, give them corn and feed them some nice cod liver oil. And that will make them get shiny new feathers yeah. very quickly. And it worked. It yeah. really worked. It really worked. I mean, one was almost bald. I thought mm. she was dying. But Yeah, they were like hedgehogs, weren't they? Yeah, they really were. And I suppose the final thing is just... Um, I've certainly got a Moran here that I was given for my 50th birthday and I'm now 58 and a half. And she was mm. not looking great the other day. She wasn't going up onto her roost. And so we treated her with a, a, a bactericidal thing in the water. 
She's completely recovered. She's greedy mm. as anything. I rather favoured her and was giving her those little wireworms or whatever they are. And she now chases me around the hen run because she thinks I've got wireworms in my pocket. But she's <laughs> right as rain and she's eight and a half. And so, you know, that's the thing is you can get well over a decade if you look after your hens well. And for mm. me, they have become, through Arthur, a really incredibly lovely, mindful, settling thing that I get up early I go and see the hens. I let them out. Sometimes I worry too early because I know that's when the fox is a bit active. And then locking them away again at the end of the day uh, and picking up the eggs that they've laid that day. It certainly gives me a, a whole layer in my life, which I owe to you and I'm very grateful for. So here's to the garden hen, I would say. Indeed. Before we finish chatting about hens, I want to mention eggs. And of course, we've got to have an eggy recipe because that would make sense. And it's a very rare event because actually Arthur has volunteered to do the recipe this week because he is, quite surprisingly in a way, the most cracking baker. And the thing that he makes for me quite regularly, which is not good for the waistline, but is exceptionally delicious, is a classic Victoria sponge. So take it away, Arthur. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how this has come about. Possibly if you're watching Calendar Girls, that wonderful scene when Helen Mirren wins the top cake prize when she bought it from M&S. <laughs> I feel like I'm now I've got to recite the recipe and I'm always tempted to say if it's a special event, get it at Marks and Spencer's. But I don't do that uh, because I do have the most gorgeous eggs. And the wonderful thing about homemade eggs is, of course, they're wonderful for breakfast and all these eggy things, but they give a sponge a, a yellow complexion. Mm. And I really hate it when I see a, a Victoria sponge that's white. Often I think, God, where the hell have those eggs come from? Because an egg yolk from a a hen that's been on grass or a hen that's been fed, you know, lovely mushed carrots will have the most orange egg yolk. So um, I, I can make a, a Victoria sponge if pushed. And um, so I will do the recipe now. It's the typical recipe. The main difference is what I find is um, once you've done the whole bowl thing and poured the, the contents of the sponge mixture into two tins, often you're asked, you know, 160 grams of the sugar, butter and flour I actually up it to 215 grams. So you end up with two lovely, big, solid, fixed sponges. Yes. And that for me is the key. I don't want to, I don't want a sinister little <laughs> pokey looking cake. I want a big fat mama on the plate. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the thing, I can't multitask in the kitchen. So I just love having the bowl. Weigh out all your caster sugar, soft, softened butter. It has to be at room temperature. I can't do butter out the fridge. The, you know, take the butter out the night before so it's nice and soft. Uh, that's my big rule. And a wooden spoon, of course. So that goes into into the bowl, all the same uh, grams. So 215 butter, flour and sugar. I add four eggs, one tablespoon of baking powder. And then I do, to be honest, I now use an electric whisk. I wasn't brought up with an electric whisk. I used to have to do it by hand. But lately I do use the electric whisk. So really whisk it in till it feels like it's really beautiful and aerated, fluffy, all mixed in. And it should be a beautiful uh, yellow complexion. And then butter your two cake tins, the sides and the base. Um, if you've got those ones that have got the uh, bases that fall out, I find it's useful to have the little um, baking tray circles mm. because then you've not got a cake that's attached. And sometimes baking that can ruin the circles, look of it. Baking paper circles, you mean? Baking paper, that's yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, baking um, parchment. Those things, yeah look, like, yeah, look like horrible. Won't describe what they remind me of. 
So yeah, they go in the oven. If it's a fan oven, 190. Mine's a fan oven, 190. Yeah. And about 20 minutes. And the, the rule is do not open that oven until they really do look beautifully domed. If you open them too quickly, you get a sad cake and it'll sink. Ah. Um, so I often, until I look through... And once they're moving away from the sides of the cake tin, that's when I know you can safely open the oven. Do not open the oven before that. That's my golden rule. And then take them out of the oven, let them rest, let them cool, and then remove them from the cake tins. Okay. Um, and once they're cold, you can do one with lovely strawberry jam or raspberry jam. Bon Marie. Is that the jam I like? Bon that Mamo. posh one that costs nearly a fiver. Bon Mamo. Sarah would have gorgeous homemade jam, but I haven't. <laughs> Uh, and then whip double cream, whip it again, electric blender till it's fluffy and thick. Yeah. And then lightly sandwich them together and dust with icing sugar. And if you haven't followed me, you can look that up in any Mary Berry book. I've just it's the, the, the eggs are the key thing. Four gorgeous eggs. That's my top recipe, and that's all I'll ever probably cook. <laughs> There's <laughs> a famous um, scene, wasn't there, between Hugh Fernley Whittingstall and Mary Berry between whether you use butter or marge. Yeah. Anyway, I guess if you're vegan, you oh, use Marge. I, I like Lurpak. Uh, you like Lurpak. I like okay. Lurpak. I was you're brought on. up with Lurpak. Okay. I'll die with Lurpak. And what I do like to do actually at this time of year is with a punnet of strawberries, when you've done the jam, I just like to take a strawberry, take the top off and then squeeze it in your hand, mush it and then put it in with the jam. Ooh. So that makes it feel really lovely. Uh, so fresh, fresh strawberries squeezed into the jam and then put the cream in. That's a good tip. I'm going to be yeah. doing that. I'm going to be very obese when I'm older. It'll all come back to haunt me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. I like the idea of your Victoria sponge. And um, more fresh fruit in it, the better, I would agree. Thanks so much for listening to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, talking about all things hen in the garden. And next week, we have got Jane Scotter from Fern Vero, which is the most wonderful, wonderful biodynamic veg and flower growing small farm on the Herefordshire Welsh border and she is an absolute mine of wonderful knowledge about delicious varieties of tomatoes, courgettes, aubergines, whatever for this time of year and a real inspiration. So listen to us then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.